start with an opening question. How do you grow a church? How do you grow a church? I mean, that's an interesting question, I guess. Maybe not quite so um, emotional, like emotionally packed for you as it it is for me. It's a question that I've wrestled with for a long time, but was uh, extremely important to me after I took the call to this church. My first session meeting, you start talking about kind of health of the church, kind of thinking through, and one of the elders says, and this is an almost direct quote, Michael, you need to be aware we have enough money for six months of your salary. After that, you have to preach your way into a paycheck. (laughs) Stu, it would have been nice to know that a couple of months ago. (laughs) Information that would have been helpful, not just yesterday, but maybe four months ago, to just be aware of. Wouldn't have changed the decision, I don't think, but would have been very nice to know. Because as my pregnant wife at home, getting ready to give birth with my new mortgage in a house I just purchased, suddenly that question of how do you grow the church becomes a little bit more emotional, we'll say. Like the kind where you wake up in the middle of the night and you've sweat through the sheets kind of moment. How on earth do we grow the church? And of course, you know, I've been here long enough, you know, the answer is you don't. Of course, you know that's the answer. You don't. But it does beg the question, what do we do? How do we be faithful? How do we see the church grow? This parable fits in with a series of parables that's not answering that question directly. It's not simply a response to how do you grow the church. But it's answering kind of, I guess, a bigger question of how does the kingdom of God grow? Not just the church. No, the church is the arena wherein the kingdom of God is displayed. But how do you see the kingdom of God grow? And it's included in multiple books here. It's included in Matthew. It's included in Mark. Uh, And it explains the nature of the kingdom of God. It's interesting that this is the flagship parable. It's the one that gets kind of the center point, and the result of it is it's the one that we know the most. We've heard it preached a thousand times and probably better than I will do. But it is something that is key for us to think about when we're going to answer that question. How do you grow the church? Jesus goes to explain the nature of the kingdom of God. He's been teaching at this point. He's been able to gather large crowds. We see here he begins by hopping into a boat and kind of pushing out in the water, sitting on the boat and using the shore and the lake as a natural amphitheater. If you've ever gone out and played on a quiet lake, you know how far your voice will carry across the water. He begins teaching. It begins here, not with a behold, but with a listen. Listen, I have something to say. You need to listen. And he tells them a story, a story that would have uh, been intriguing. I mean, it would have been neat. It's a story that they would have been familiar with. I'll be honest, uh, not many times in my life have I actually sowed any sorts of seed out in the natural world. Uh, I have him growing in my office, but that's about as much as I've gotten. But for them, this would have been a very real and normal occurrence. Let me tell you a story. 
a dude, we'll call him, wants to plant something, seed, grass, wheat, grain. And he goes and he sows it. And he throws it out and he throws it on the path and he throws it on all of the various parts of his property with the intention of going back to till the soil, to, to stir it up so that the seed gets nestled into the dirt. And you don't want to just throw it on top of the dirt. It doesn't grow that way. And that's why we do things like put straw on top of it or the really you know, kind of goofy looking green wrap to hold the moisture in. But the different types of soil produce different types of of products. And of course, he would certainly uh, delight in what he's getting from parts of it and maybe not quite so much from others. But that's what the dude did. And he ends the story with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I love that. Begins and ends this probably most famous parable, certainly one of, with a command. It's time to listen. It's time to listen. Already he's framing the audience. He's he's prepping them, framing his story to kind of capture the main point, even in the way he's delivering it. What's the key? Well, obviously the key is it's time to listen. And I'll be honest, you probably have to feel a little bit for the disciples because if I had heard this parable as well, Without the explanation, I would have been like, that's a groovy story, Jesus. I have no idea what you're doing, man. Well, I mean, of course he took his seed and he put it different place. I mean, that doesn't make, I mean, I, okay, good. I mean, that's what farmers do. All right. What's going on now? And that's when you actually get the impression. That's exactly what happens. Uh, when the crowd's gone, when he's alone, obviously the disciples have been thinking about this. They're trying to obey his command to, if you have ears, let him hear, to listen to what he has said. And they come back to him and I'm like, Jesus, look, I'm not to be rude. What, is, what in the world? What are you talking about? And he goes in to explaining the types of, of soil, and you know these, talk about them with great regularity, but are extremely important to understand. First, verse 15, the seed that is sown on the path, and he's using, a, well, I'll back up and say a, a parable. What is a parable? Uh, a parable is kind of like an extended allegory, extended metaphor. It's uh, designed to express usually one primary spiritual truth, usually. Uh, not every part relates to a spiritual reality. It's designed as like an extended illustration. In fact, actually, we get ourselves in the biggest trouble when we try to one-to-one map every single little piece to a spiritual reality, right? And that's why none of us like to talk about the parable of the unjust judge, because the way we always read parables, that means Jesus or God is not just, and we don't like that because that's not true. We don't know how to interpret it. It's because we're missing the point. We're trying to -to one-to-one every little thing. Here, Jesus is using this parable to explain. All right, so the the portrait is the word of God is going out. It's being sown kind of everywhere. And the person that's sowing it, the farmer, is certainly uh, intended to at least hint at the disciples that are listening. And first category of person is 15, where the word falls on the path. And where the word is sown, they immediately hear, I'm sorry, they hear... 
And Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. I think this is really an intriguing description of this person. The person that hears the word of God and from our eyes looks like the hardest rejection. I mean, understand, all of these seeds produce a plant of a kind except this category. I mean, these are the people that we would see interacting with the word and it is just nothing it would be like dropping grass seed right here on a, you know, our wonderful tile floor. It's not going to do anything. You could take crabgrass and drop it in here, and even that. But it's interesting that Jesus describes this person not as the person who is severely hard-hearted, though that is certainly the case. Not the complete reprobate who is disgusted by the word of the Lord instead, actually, really intriguingly, takes it into a conversation of cosmic terms. How is it that the word bears no fruit in these people lives? Well, people's lives, well, Satan immediately comes and snatches it away. And again, if you really hadn't been paying attention to this or have you know, not read it 48,000 times like some of us, you would not go, well, I wasn't expecting that answer. I mean, I, if you're going to be honest, this is a bit of a surprise answer from Jesus that why is the word not effective in their life? Well, it's because of Satan. That the great enemy of God, the great enemy of the church is active in snatching the word away. Do you think about that category very often? I mean, do you think about that? Think about how many times I preach, and even when ears are hearing in this room, how many times we have the devil just snatching away the very words coming out of my mouth. I would suggest probably in most Reformed circles, this is a category that we do not actually have correctly. I would suggest most of the time we have a category here that it's all on that individual for being hateful against God. And we've forgotten that, oh no, there is a greater enemy, actually. The one who kind of helps start it all. A rewind to when the original conflict is introduced. When the great adversary started a conversation with Eve. Did God really say? Oh, wait, that's interesting. From the very beginning, what was he doing? He's going after the word of God. Oh, wow, that's, I mean, you think about that. What a pattern, right? The devil's efforts to display his hatred toward God. Now, certainly he's not going to win. But it's an attack on the word. A word in the hearts of these folks, a word in the mind of Eve, That's why so often we think of him as as described in the scriptures, the father of lies. Why are his lies so significant? Because it is an attack on the word of God. Get us confused so we do not know what God is saying or what God is doing.
how are our lives change if we actually kind of redefined this category to f- match what Mark says? If rather than simply just having a category for people who hate God and hate his word, how might our lives be different if we redefined that category to understand that the evil one is at work snatching away the word of God? Do you think sometimes you might pray that the devil would be bound while I'm preaching? I think sometimes you might pray that when you actually go to read the scriptures that the devil's voice would not be present. That his lies would not be heard, understood, or believed. Maybe even to just go to war with him at all. Again, how many Christians just like us never even think about him at all? This is really interesting because he plays a really big role in the scriptures. I mean, really big role at the beginning, really big role at the end, and a huge role in the Gospels. And yet we tend to not think about him at all. Second category. Seed that's sown on rocky ground. You've got to think in most cases, the farmer, well, maybe he, he knows his land extremely well, but the sower here maybe doesn't know all of that ground is rocky because the rocks are underground. You think about if there's like a, you know, a layer of rock directly beneath the surface, the plants go in, they're able to kind of spring up, but there's no way for them to get below it to get to the water table. And so the second it gets hot, they would run into problems. They don't have roots that are deep, that are strong, that are able to get moisture when the temperature increases. And so they're not able to endure. He explains this in 17, that when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Again, interesting, what's the emphasis here? It's on account of the word that the persecution is happening. Again, it's not they're being persecuted because they're fools. That's not really persecution, right? (laughs) That's well earned. Interestingly here, not being persecuted because they're holy, though that certainly is a theme throughout the scriptures. But here, specifically being persecuted because of the word. It gets tough. And they fall away. And you could see how this would happen, right? It gets hot. They want water. There's no water on the surface, so they try to get down deep. They can't get down deep. And instead, they just bake. You have roast grass or roast wheat or whatever it is. It wilts in the sun. A portrait of a person who, interestingly here, we have a plant. I mean, we would, well, with my not green thumb, would call some bit of a success. Something grew. Where there was nothing there previously, there's something there now. But it's not enough. It's not able to make it through the difficulty. It's not able to have real and genuine root A 
third category again, one that we'll, we are familiar with, the roots that, I mean, the seed that gets thrown into the thorn bush and they begin to grow and then the thorns choke them out. If we were going to deliver this again here in the south, we would say someone took fescue and dumped it in crabgrass. And no matter how hard you try, Boy, that crabgrass is going to be hard to get rid of, isn't it? It grows sideways, it grows all over, and it chokes out the good seed. Here he explains in verse 18, These are the ones that hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Again, it's interesting, again, Mark is holding the contrast here between the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things on one side, and a fruitful ministry of the Word on the other. I think it's interesting that inherently, inherently, and hear this carefully, these other things are not necessarily evil. Having not uh, anxiety, but having care of the world around you, being thoughtful about your job, being thoughtful about your family, being thoughtful about the relationships that God has placed you in, not inherently evil. Being thoughtful about how to provide for wife and children, not inherently evil. For other things in the world, not inherently evil, can be, but not inherently. But interestingly, the misbalanced priorities, and they become the tool of the devil to choke the word. And then the last one. Our favorite, the most famous, it's good soil, the seed hits it, it grows normally, it grows well, and then it produces fruit. It produces a harvest. And interestingly, not every harvest is the same. In some cases, it produces a massive harvest, and in some cases, it's just a good harvest. In some cases, it's a harvest, and that's okay. You go, well, okay, I've got that, all right. And I know what your application is going to be, Michael. Every sermon ever has the same application from this passage, which is go tell everybody about Jesus. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's an application you should make in every sermon in some sense, I guess. <laughs> Preaching on the Ten Commandments, go tell people about Jesus. Preaching on creation, go tell people about Jesus. Preaching Leviticus, go tell people about Jesus. That's fine. It's a good application for all of them. But the way that Mark has this set up, it's actually, it, it highlights one specific feature that is so intriguing. And it's the part that I skipped over because, my goodness, is it inconvenient. Verse 10 and following, where Jesus is alone with the disciples and they ask him about uh, parables. Can you explain what you're doing? And he gives them this, oh man, is this an encouraging promise. And by that I mean, no, it's really absolutely not. 
To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. This great mystery has been given to you, plural. But for those outside, those that are not part of you, everything is in parables. This is why I use parables. And he quotes Isaiah 6, verse 9, that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Well, that doesn't sound good at all. In fact, actually, that sounds quite terrible if I understand correctly. Well, maybe, maybe if I go back to Isaiah and I remember that, you know, the original chapter, maybe I'm just, it's out of context, I'm misunderstanding it. And so if you were going to, and you can do this later, flip over to Isaiah and you get to it, and it's his call, right after the Lord has called him to ministry, and you think, oh, this is so exciting, it's Isaiah's ordination. And then you remember, what was Isaiah called to? Don't answer, that's rhetorical. What was Isaiah called to? What was the nature of his ministry? It was a ministry of condemnation that he would proclaim the word of God in the midst of Israel and in doing so would increase their damnation because they would not perceive though they did see. They would not understand though they would be able to hear him and they would not turn and be forgiven. Ah, that's rough. That's why it always makes me chuckle in the books I've had to read for my doctoral studies and such and preaching, but the ones that are always like, well, we need to preach like Jesus. I'm like, you really want to go that route? You really want to go the route specifically of intentionally being ununderstandable? I would not do that, but okay, that's fine. But you have to understand what's happening here is why is this anchored between the parable itself and the explanation? It's because here Mark is explaining a key element. In fact, actually, it is the key element to the kingdom of God. What distinguishes the four types of soil? What distinguishes the function, how the word takes root in a life? And the answer is faith. That when faith is present, the word has massive yield. But when faith is not, it it doesn't. It doesn't have that yield. In fact, actually, it serves as a ministry of condemnation. It's an amazing thing Jesus says here in verse 11. Look, if, to you has already been given the secret of the kingdom of God. If you already understand who Jesus is, if you already understand his kingdom, if you already understand the gospel, the parables will make sense. You don't have to work at them. But they'll make sense. But for those that don't have faith... It just increases judgment. It actually does speak to the tremendous wisdom of the Lord Jesus that the very sermon form he often used, the form itself, served as a divider of sheep and goats. It's pretty amazing. 
That in doing so, we would see part of what we talked about this morning in Exodus, that we would see God's wrath being worked out, even in how the kingdom grows, that it's not just God's people here, and then everybody else is kind of nice and all, and we can be buddies, and it can be... No, these are God's enemies, and their wrath, their judgment is being increased by rejecting something that they hear, and they see, and they know, but they never understand and never believe. To think about, in some sense, even right now, God is doing this in this room. The word is going out. And it's serving the great sifting function. Encouraging, strengthening, edifying God's people. And increasing the condemnation of those that aren't. So then, how do we apply this? Well, go tell everybody about Jesus, please. That's a good answer. We don't stop there, though. A number of things that I would say are good and appropriate applications from this, specifically for this congregation, would be, one is uh, pray, obviously, but not just generic prayer. I mean, generic prayer is good, but I mean specifically direct your prayers. Pray that God would give faith. Pray that God would give understanding. Pray that God would give faith. Fruit that God would give root. Pray that God would work in and through His Word. You've heard these prayers prayed from this pulpit many times. In fact, actually, every time we go to have a sermon and we have that prayer right before it, you know, that's called it's the prayer of illumination. That God would indeed give perceiving and not just seeing. That he would give understanding and not just hearing. That we may be built up by the word and not condemned by it. You've heard prayers that God would make this be a church that bears fruit a hundredfold. And that we would even produce fruit at all. But asking the Lord to give fruit and root to his word. I would encourage you, and uh, shameless plug, this is part of what we're asking for. We mentioned this at the congregational meeting uh, just a week ago or so, uh, to start having teams that are praying specifically for the word to have fruit and root in our midst. That God would bless the reading and the preaching of his scriptures, that he would transform hearts, that he would give faith. Why? So that the church will grow. And by that, we don't mean so that we can pat ourselves on the back, that we can stroke our ego and say, hey, look at what we did. Ah, now we can write our books. Now we can be famous. Now we can make our money. But instead, so that the word of God would be fulfilled and the kingdom of God would come. Again, what a thought. What an idea. What a concept. That the word of God would continue to increase in fruit and root in Fort Mill, Antigua Cay, Rock Hill, and South Charlotte. To think what God will do. This is a fun part. We can even go back and look back at where we started the sermon, can't we? 
Well, Michael, you better preach your way into a salary because we don't have enough money to pay you. Well, let's be honest. I think we all can clearly determine I did not do that. I was unsuccessful at that task. In fact, actually, I was set up to fail from the beginning because I am not capable to do that. But look, has God given fruit and root? A decade of faithful ministry in this new leadership that we have? And God's mercy, God's blessing, God's growth, the fruit multiplying. Sean and I were talking actually right before this. Got to do another new members class. I just did a new members class. Just did the largest new members class I've ever done. And the next one, I think I've got 10 people waiting already. That will be the next largest new members class that we've ever done. Might it be that we not just study the word to help ourselves, spend our prayers to help ourselves, and those are good. I mean, honestly, please pray for, pray for each other, pray for yourselves. Please do that. But I'm going to shamelessly ask, pray for the word to work. Pray for my sermons. Pray that God uses the reading and preaching of the scriptures. Pour out your soul that God would make this happen. Because when he gives faith, in verse 11, he then gives fruit in verse 20. Secondly, I would say in terms of application, it's important for us to be reminded that rejection doesn't always look the same. It's easy for us to kind of caricature the unbeliever and be like, oh, well, they're a creature of hate and they hate the word always. That is technically true. Ignore the phone ringing in my office. (laughs) That is technically true, but if we go to look at this passage, here we have three different categories of unbeliever. We have three different categories of person who is rejecting God's word, and it always looks a little different. I think it's interesting that the one that grows the most quickly is the unbeliever. That's really surprising to me. The one that on the surface you go, oh, well, that's definitely, nope, nope, (laughs) nice try. To have that category in our mind, again, so it doesn't fully catch us off guard. Because as we pray and we trust that God uses His Word, it does the sifting process. The double-edged aspect, the encouraging and edifying and strengthening, and the condemning and enraging of the unbeliever. As we pray that God uses His Word, we will see both. Put slightly differently, I think we'll see a lot of fruit. I also think we're going to see a lot of hate. As God continues to send His Word forth in this place. And then lastly... To give just a little bit of a sense of wonder. That 128 hymn that you already sang, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I love the last stanza. I told you I'd call your attention to it in just a minute, so kind of pay attention to it. Is, uh, was it blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain? God is his own interpreter. 
He will make it plain. It's fun to just marvel at how God's work is so comprehensively excellent. That part of what he does in salvation is not just heaven and hell. That's important. Don't get that wrong. Part of his salvation is reconciling God and man and reconciling man and man. And that's really important. But part of his salvation is reshaping the brain so we can see. It be a little bit more inflammatory that on purpose, but to think about the youngest child in this room that is a true believer understands more truth than the wisest, smartest, most brilliant unbeliever ever. On a side application, that we should probably take good care of our kids then. Because they're brilliant. Because the Lord gives faith and gives understanding. We can also marvel at his mercy. And again, i be honest, I've grown up in the church. I've grown up knowing the Lord and I haven't grown, I wasn't old enough to understand the reorganization process. Those are converted later in life, ask them about it. The process of having all the things that you knew reorganized so you re-understand what's good and bad, right and proper and terrible. And if you don't understand at all what I'm talking about, thank the Lord, it's a mercy. And if you do, thank the Lord, it's a mercy. For the God that we worship is the mighty God. And Jesus is a delight. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we would ask that our hearts would indeed be that fertile soil. And Lord, we trust that you are the Lord of the harvest. We would ask that our hearts would indeed be uh, the hundredfold harvest. That they would be open and receptive to your truth and that you would produce an amazing product. That gentleness would overflow. That hope would overflow. That love and holiness, joy, kindness... Oh, Lord, work in our hearts through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.